You heard in the call to worship text uh, from Isaiah an allusion to the ancient foot messengers uh, that uh, bring good news, that brought good news. There's actually a particular name for those kind of runners in Greek culture. They were called hemerodromos, which means literally day runners. Uh, they could run all day and not stop. Sometimes, uh, depending on the context of the message they brought, they were called dromokerkes. In other words, running heralds. Running heralds. And in that time before all the electronic uh, communication that we have today, they played a very important role. Uh, we even read of some of these men. There's one by, by the name of Pheidippides, Hemerodromos, who Herodotus says in his history, ran from Athens all the way down to Sparta in 490 BC uh, with a message that the Athenians were asking the Spartans to come join them in resisting a massive invasion by the Persians. Persians uh, tried a number of times under kings like Darius I. Uh, to get a foothold in Europe and expand their own kingdom. Well, uh, Pheidippides ran that distance of about 150 miles in about 24 hours, bringing that message from the Athenians, will you come help us to resist the Persians? Ironically, uh, the Spartans said, sure, they're always up for a fight, they're willing to fight, but unfortunately, we can't come right away because the phase of the moon is not right. <laughs> Their uh, idolatrous practices uh, said they couldn't leave until the full moon. They had to finish this uh, idolatrous festival they were in. So Pheidippides rests, gets something to eat, runs all the way back to Athens, another 150 miles, to give them the important word, important news that the Spartans were not coming. And with that knowledge, the Athenian generals were able to make a wise decision. They realized they couldn't depend on the Spartans right away, so they realized we need to try to get, get the edge here and attack as soon as possible. And so while the Persian cavalry was separate from the rest of this massive, massive foot soldier army of theirs, the Athenians attacked and using a very good strategy those uh, militia fighters, which is what they were, the Greeks were militiamen, like the fighters in the American Revolution. They were ordinary men who took up arms in the defense of their cities. So they attacked these mercenaries, these paid soldiers of the Persians, and there was an incredible rout of the Persians, even though they vastly outnumbered the Greeks. And there on the plains of Marathon, was one, uh, one of the battles that historians say is the most important one of the most important battles in human history, certainly in the history of Europe. In an interesting sidelight, uh, a runner came, an unknown runner, we don't know uh, the name of that uh, Hemodromos or uh, Dromokerkes, who brought the news of that victory at Marathon from the plains of Marathon to Sparta, distance of about 25 miles. And uh, 
we're told, it's not quite sure whether this is history or legend, we're told that as soon as he spoke the words reading in Sparta, he collapsed and died. Uh, that was the inspiration, you might have already guessed, for marathons <laughs> that are run today, uh, a little bit over 25 miles. Those messengers played an extremely important role. And it's interesting in that Isaiah text, isn't it, that the way that it's worded, uh, if we take that as literally as possible, it says, how beautiful upon the mountains the feet of good news messengers, proclaimers of peace, good news messengers of good things, proclaimers of salvation, those who say to Zion, your God reigns. Did, did it occur to you to wonder why feet are, are focused on there? Why do they say their feet are beautiful? Why not their voices beautiful? I mean, their voices are speaking the good news. How can, how can feet of these, uh, of these messengers, which are probably pretty dirty and scarred and smelly, how can they be beautiful? I, 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 wonder if, I wonder if we're invited to picture there uh, the setting in Isaiah, of course, is Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem are looking for the news, looking for the news of the battle. How's it gone? And, and looking out from the city, they, they spy a runner. There's actually an incident uh, similar to this in uh, the book of uh, 1 Samuel, uh, where David is waiting for an important message. And, and a runner is spied in the distance. Are his feet beautiful or not? Does he bring good news or bad news? And I wonder if, I wonder if the observant person, surely they, they would be able to tell by the way the guy ran whether he was bringing good news or not. You know, if you're bringing bad news, I think it's going to show. But if you're bringing good news, there's going to be a lift to your feet. There's going to be an enthusiasm about your running. You're going to be anxious to get that good news and see the relief of the people. And so I think maybe that's why that image that we have in Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet we see the feet and we realize they're bringing good news. Well, that forms a, an important part of our text today. We're continuing with these texts from the Messiah Oratorio. And so you've already noted perhaps that the Messiah Selection 38 is credited both to Isaiah 52.7 and Romans 10.15 because Paul is quoting it there in Romans. Quoting it in part, not in full, but quoting it nonetheless. And so I thought it'd be good for us to look at uh, chapter 10 of Romans. And we'll focus in on just a couple of key points, really. Don't, don't uh, be dismayed that we're going to spend a whole lot of time going through the entire uh, passage in detail. But we're going to focus in on a couple of important points that relate, I think, to that quotation that he uses from Isaiah 52. 
Now in Romans 10, we're sort of jumping into the middle of a section in the book of Romans where Paul is addressing the condition of the Jews of his day who have substantially rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Okay, they, they've not only rejected him in his life in a way that led to his crucifixion, but they've rejected him in the gospel as well. And so the preaching of Paul and the other apostles, the testimony of other believers, has for the most part been rejected by the Jewish people as a whole. And so Paul's, Paul's addressing that. How can that be? That the covenant people of God, the people who are rescued out of slavery in Egypt and given a land of their own, the people that God called his own, how can it be that they have rejected the gospel? And so he's dealing with that in chapters 9 through 11. You might want to read all three of those chapters later on. Well, we're going to jump into the middle of this in chapter 10 and pick up on, on two key things at least two th key things about the gospel proclamation that are important for us today. So uh, Paul will be speaking of the Jews as we begin our text then. I'm going to begin reading at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? 
First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask, of me, ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Well, let's follow Paul's thinking as he goes through this chapter. Notice that uh, first sort of personal note there in the beginning of the chapter. He wants to make sure that what he says about the Jews is not perceived as, as a, an animosity against them. And so we see a glimpse of Paul's heart here. Uh, we see this a few times in his writing, this uh, concern for his uh, brothers and sisters according to the flesh, that is, his Jewish brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 9, the previous chapter, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish of heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So, so we don't want to take anything Paul says about the Jews as coming out of a spirit of animosity. Some people try to, try to do that with uh, Paul's teaching, but that's simply not the case. Uh, it, it's, in a sense, we could say with tears in his eyes, with a broken heart, that he says what he says here about the Jews. And indeed, is he not following the example of his Lord in that Think of Jesus, who, who forcefully prophesied the judgment of God upon his generation for their rejection of him. I mean, he was, he was plainly, plain in saying that, that the wrath of God was going to be poured out upon that city for rejecting him. And yet, in Luke chapter 19, when we see him coming into the city just before his crucifixion, Luke tells us, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Word for weeping there is not, he didn't just shed a few tears. He cried, he, he wailed, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. So I think Paul is, Paul is the heart of his, his Lord and Savior here. And I hope we do as well. I hope that, that our hearts are moved with concern for those who have not responded to the gospel. Paul says, notice there in verse 2, they have plenty of zeal. They have plenty of sincerity. And here's a reminder, isn't it, that sincerity is not enough. You can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely wrong about something that takes your life in a physical sense. You can be sincerely wrong about that which leads to eternal death as well. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, he says. They are ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God. Well, does that ignorance excuse them? They don't know. That sort of invites the question, well, can they be blamed then? Well, that question is going to be answered decisively in this chapter, as you've probably already noticed. They are willfully ignorant. 
You're ignorant in what way? And here's the first thing I want you to notice in this passage. Perhaps you already noticed it because you picked up on a key word that's repeated over and over again in the opening part of, of this chapter. In fact, that's one way to, to always look at a passage. You know, look for key words. Uh, not, try not to, only to follow the argument, but to look for, look for words that are repeated. There's a lot of repetition in Scripture, and it's there to get your attention and help you to understand and, so perhaps you've already noticed the repetition of the word righteousness here. Righteousness. And you want to have a broad understanding of that term. This in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew word for righteousness, it's, it's synonymous with justice. Okay, so this, this isn't merely a, a personal moral uprightness. This is... This is a justice that extends to all human relationships. This is a right living before God, you might say. So they're zealous for righteousness. They're zealous for justice. They're religious people like many religious people who are enthusiastic, who are committed to good living, to, to high moral standards, to righteousness, to justice. They want to see justice in their lives. They want to see justice in the culture in which they live. But what's the problem with that? Well, you see it, don't you, in, in verse 3. They're pursuing the wrong kind of righteousness. They're pursuing a righteousness of their own creation. They're pursuing a goodness that they create by their own efforts. And in doing so, they're rejecting the righteousness of God. Well, you could say they're rejecting true righteousness then, aren't they? What's the righteousness of God? Well, Paul has already, already referred to it in the very opening chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Human righteousness, that is, human goodness, human justice gained by human effort, is not compatible with the righteousness of God, with the justice of God. And to pursue one is to reject the other. Now, that's central, central to the right understanding of the Christian faith. Don't let anyone take that from you. It's tempting. It's so tempting, even after you've come to faith, isn't it, to fall back into relying on your own efforts. Like sometimes well-meaning people will sort of encourage you in that even. It, it, 
it seems on the surface so, so right. Don't you want to be a good person? Don't you want to live up to high standards? I mean, that's what the Jews were doing. They, they had the best standards in the history of the world. They had the very word of God. They had the law, Torah. And, and it's so tempting when you, when you know what righteousness looks like, it's so tempting to think, well, I can do that. Okay, if I'm determined enough, you know, if I put out enough effort, if I work hard enough, I can change myself. I know I'm not perfect. I know there are things that, that I need to change about myself, but, but I, can, I can get there. And you'll have plenty of other people telling you you can get there, but it's, it's impossible. Paul's arguing here, it's impossible. And I'll follow his argument there in verse 5 and following. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, there's one righteousness. There's a righteousness that comes by perfectly fulfilling the law. Okay, it's there. He's, he's quoting right from, from Scripture, Leviticus 18, ver, first five verses is where uh, Paul gets this, uh, gets this quotation. I am Yahweh your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. There's a righteousness that's gained by keeping the law. The only problem, of course, is that you've not done that. <laughs> you and I haven't kept that righteousness. And so what does the law do then? The same law that tells us we can live, we can have eternal life through keeping the law because we have not kept the law, that same law condemns us, right? So here's the good news. The next verse. But the righteousness based on faith says, do you not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? Paul's using a, an expression here, a, a metaphor that, that really says it, it doesn't take a superhuman effort on your part. Okay? That's not what is asked for. God is not imposing on you an impossible standard, in other words. You don't have to somehow make yourself good enough to merit heaven. You don't have to somehow punish yourself enough to make up for all of your sins. That's not where it's at. But what, is this, what does it say? Verse 8, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. In other words, the truth... Okay, the word of grace, the gospel, is right here. You've heard it. You've said it. 
That is the word of faith that we proclaim. That is the gospel, okay? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And now we have the second key word of the, of the chapter, right? Faith. Faith. We want to have a right view of righteousness. And we want to see that the way to the righteousness of God in your life is by faith. That's what Paul's arguing. With the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And just to make sure that uh, we don't miss the universal application of this, Paul says in verse 12, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that we see that expression all the way back in Genesis 4, the beginning of human history, when you see the bifurcation between the people of God and the, the people of this world, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, a distinguishment is made by those who call upon the name of the Lord. We're told in Genesis, then men, that is human beings, the human race, began to call on the name of the Lord. What is it to call on the name of the Lord? Well, there's, there's a two-way significance there, I think. You call on the Lord when you call him your Lord. Okay, catch that? You call on the Lord when you call him your Lord, when you submit to his lordship. You cannot say that you're calling on the name of the Lord if you're not submitting to his lordship. But at the same time, in that expression, calling on the name of the Lord, you're calling yourself by his name. You're saying, I belong to him. So he is my Lord. And I am his child. All that's wrapped up in calling on the name of the Lord. And what does it have to do with your goodness, with your righteousness as a human being? Absolutely nothing. Right? Just as you didn't make yourself the child of your parents, you don't make yourself the child of God. It's a sovereign work of his grace. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, maybe we can still say it's not our fault. It's not the fault of the religious people. if we haven't believed him. Okay, we're supposed to call on him in faith, but what if we don't have faith? And Well, what if we don't have faith because we've never heard? And, and well, how can we hear unless somebody tells us? You see what I'm doing following Paul's line of thinking in verse 14 and following? 
And how's somebody going to tell us unless somebody sends them? You see, human nature trying to get out of responsibility here, don't you? We didn't hear it. We didn't hear it clearly enough. What's Paul's answer to that? Well, his answer is the quote from Isaiah. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. The good news has been given. The good news has been given. The problem, verse 16 says, is they haven't obeyed the gospel. Follow his logic here? The good news has been spoken to them. That good news that God reigns, that God rules, that God is sovereign. And the religious person doesn't want to hear it. They want to say, I'm sovereign. I'm the one that decides my eternal destiny. By my own good works, I will earn heaven. By my own decision, by my own orientation of thinking, They have not all obeyed the gospel. And Paul points out, Isaiah himself said that they rejected it. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? The gospel has gone out, and people have responded with disbelief. But there's an irony here, isn't there? Look at verse 17. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And so again, he asks the question, but I ask, have they not heard? And Paul says, indeed, they have. And he quotes from Psalm 19 here, their voice has gone out to all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And that Psalm 19 uh, clearly presents God's word going out in creation in the first part of the psalm. God is speaking to the human beings in creation around them. There's no way that they can deny, as Paul says in the beginning of Romans, there's no way they can deny that there's a God. Creation itself is shouting that at them. The only way that they can deny that is to suppress the truth, to refuse to be thankful to the God that has made them. But the Psalm 19 goes on to then extol the law as the fullest revelation of God. Who is the fulfillment of the law? Well, right there back in the beginning of the chapter, didn't it? We read verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And think there in terms of end. Think of, think of goal. He's the end in the sense of the goal of the law. He, he is the full revelation of the law. Remember God said, the one who keeps the law perfectly will live. Well, Jesus kept the law perfectly. So death had no hold on him. And so, so the gospel has gone out. But they've rejected it because they wanted to pursue their own righteousness.
And what's the result? Verse 19. But I asked, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, this is from Deuteronomy, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, with a foolish nation I will make you angry. In that sober last sermon that Moses gives to the people of Israel, he says, I know what you're going to do. I know what you're going to do. You're going to reject the grace of God. You've been in this wilderness for 40 years. God has tried to get into your heads his grace. He has led you all the way. The shoes on, the very sandals on your feet have not worn out. Your clothing is not worn out. He has fed you miraculously every day. And why has he done all those things? So that you might know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, that you might know that you are saved by grace. But Moses said, I know you're going to reject it. I know even now God hasn't given you a mind to understand that, he says. So you know what's going to happen? And here's, here's the quote in our text. I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With that foolish nation, I will make you angry. I will save the people that you think are idiots. I will make you jealous of people that you look down on because my grace will be extended to them. What irritates a religious person, someone who's making it by their own efforts more than anything else, what irritates them is the idea that God is being gracious to some jerk. You mean God's going to forgive that guy after what he did? And I'm working so hard to be a good person? That's what's in view here. And he takes it even further. Verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. The religious person, the Jew says, I've been seeking for God so hard. That there are those today who talk about seekers of God out there, and we've got to help these seekers of God. These people say, I, I'm seeking God, I'm seeking God, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing the other thing, I'm living a good life, I'm seeking God. And you're telling me that God reveals himself to these people over here that didn't even look for him? But just out of the blue, he's going to bring them to faith? And I, God says through Isaiah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to extend my grace to people that don't deserve it. People that didn't even look for me, didn't ask for me. I'm going to break into their lives and I break their hearts and they're going to long for me and they're going to find me. That's the gospel. You are found not because you are so busily seeking after God, but he came looking for you.
Spurgeon points out in the parable that Jesus tells about the lost sheep. It doesn't say that the shepherd lost one of his sheep and then the shepherd sort of kept a lookout. Okay, he, he watched for the sheep to come back to him, <laughs> for the sheep to seek him. Spurgeon says, no, 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 no. The shepherd goes and finds that sheep that is so lost it's not even looking for him anymore. Brings him back. That's grace. Your salvation is by grace. But at the same time, and Spurgeon points this out as well, as surely as verses 19 and verses 20 tell us, preach to us the sovereignty of God and salvation, that he reveals himself to those people who don't look for him, Verse 20 preaches to us human responsibility. Of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. What a moving image there. The, the parent, the parent reaching out, longing to reach that child, longing to, to love that child, to, to give that child what they need, but the child is Stubbornly turning his back or her back. Or think of the, think of the lover as, as God often presents himself in the Old Testament. He is, he is the, the groom, the husband who loves his wife and longs to bestow his love on her, longs to lavish his love upon her, and she rejects him. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Have you heard the good news? Have you heard the good news? God reigns. God rules. That's the message that, that you need. Because you're a sinner. And you can't make yourself good enough. But God rules and he has defeated sin and death in Jesus Christ on your behalf. So live in that grace. Live in that grace. You're saved by grace, live in that grace. Don't forget it. This communion meal that we're going to observe in just a few moments is a reminder that you live by God's grace. Remember that lesson he taught the, the people in the wilderness? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Think about that as you sit around this table. This is reminding us, just as your physical body needs physical food, your spiritual body is, is completely dependent upon the grace of God. And, and as you feed your body with this little bit of food and drink, that's emblematic of your feeding spiritually on Jesus Christ because he is the end of the law. He is the righteousness of God. And in his death and in your 
your repentance and faith in him in that death, you have been united with him so that when he died, your sin was atoned for. And when he was raised from the dead, you were raised to live a life dependent upon his grace. Good news. Good news. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want not just to understand this with our heads, not just to have a head knowledge, but to have a heart knowledge of the truth of the gospel. So help us in that, Lord. You, you know how we are. You know how easily it is for us, easy it is for us to fall back on our own efforts, to start thinking we live this Christian life on the basis of our own strength. Uh, remind us that that's not the case. Even with this meal of communion, remind us that we're dependent upon your grace, that it's in your strength, it's in your, your word working in us, your spirit working in us, that we grow in righteousness and godliness. And that's what we long for, Lord. We want that righteousness that righteousness that loves God, that rejoices in his rule, that rejoices to do his will. We extend to us grace so that you might make us into those kinds of people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.